0: Speaking of seasick and all of that, how were the, how was that going into a hurricane?
1: Man, it was awesome. So everybody's sick. Uh, I think we were not actually in, in the eye, but we were on the outside and they were, I think he was too close still. We were too, we were too close to the, to the storm. But by that time he was like, well, we're not going to go further out. We're, this thing's already going to end and we're going to turn around. So we were, we were in pretty rough seas. And uh, the captain had told everybody, if you're not actually on watch, I want you in your rack. The captain was sick. He didn't come out of his stateroom for like two days. And there were like three of us, all from Texas, obviously, that weren't sick. And so one of them was an officer and then two enlisted guys. And the officer was like, well, hey, man, let's go make breakfast. I'm like, yeah, let's go. We got the whole galley to ourselves. And so we were in there making breakfast. And, and then we had like nothing to do all day. And we were hitting some pretty rough seasons. And so... Up in the front of a, of a frigate, you have the anchor windlass, which is basically a huge spool that holds uh, you know a ship our size had one, two, see one, two, three, four, five. We had six huge lines, rope lines that moored us when we were in port. And so this spool was about fifty feet tall, and each section was a section for a different line, you know. And so they would pull them off one at a time when they would, when we would moor up. And so we were going in there and when the ship would take a nose dive, cause you know, the ship, it goes nose first, right. And then it goes down and then it comes nose up and then it rolls to the, to the port and then it rolls to the starboard and then it starts again. It goes down, up, you know, and sometimes you're doing that simultaneously, you know, up and down. And so we went up there to the anchor windlass and we were playing games.
0: Welcome back to after the battle campfire. Today, I talked to the founder of Third Day Coffee, Jose Alizan. Jose is a Navy veteran. We talked about his time in the Navy, and that one time he rode a frigate into the eye of a hurricane. We also talk about his journey from a sailor to entrepreneur. So sit back and enjoy this episode of After the Battle Campfire. All right, you guys hear it all the time. The typical, if you like this episode, please rate us, subscribe to us leave a comment on iTunes or Spotify, wherever. Well, it really does make a difference for this podcast. We're small, we're trying to get bigger, and all of this feeds the algorithm so that iTunes or Spotify or Pandora, wherever you find us at, will rate us higher and higher with the more likes and comments that you guys leave. And always, if you guys find value in these episodes, please leave us a comment on the episode or on the show uh, page and the best way to help us is to share it off. So again, thank you. I hate that voice. All right. I'm back again with a new friend I made a couple weeks ago. Um, We went to his place in Seguin, Texas, which is roughly, I don't know, 30 minutes, 35 minutes away from me, depending on traffic. And I met Jose. Say hi, Jose. Hello, Jose is another veteran who got into coffee and we're going to get into that and find out why. Um, we're also going to talk about what we did at his house and we're going to talk about his service. So let's get started. And Jose, what got you into the service in general growing up? Were you growing up here in Texas?
1: Yeah, uh, I, I grew up in San Antonio. Um, born and raised. My dad is from Charlotte, Texas, which is uh, people who you don't really know. Most people know where Poteet is because they have the Poteet Strawberry Festival. Dad's even further south of Poteet and literally a little podunk town. Um, And when he was, I mean, the second that he graduated high school, he joined the Air Force and he went uh, as a crypto tech and he ended up doing a bunch of counterintelligence stuff over in Turkey and overseas. I don't know where else. Um, from 1955 to 1959, when he got back, his youngest brother went into the Air Force, went to Vietnam, uh, and, and he did a full 24, 25 years, something like that before he retired. And then we have, I have probably, on both sides of the family, I probably have 20 great uncles who all served in World War II. Most of them were infantry, and we have a medic. Uh, we had a two rangers. Um, and some other stuff, a couple of Navy guys, and then before that, my dad's uncle uh, was in World War One, and I've got all his service records. I mean, where he got off the boat, you know, in France and whatnot. And so, uh, it was never a doubt in my mind um, when I graduated high school what I was going to do. I grew up knowing that I was going to go in the military, like right out of high school, and um, and that's pretty much what I did. But I didn't go air force. So I went Navy and that's because the year I graduated, the air force had a freeze on recruiting. And oh, damn. So what, what was your,
0: how do I say this? What was your background as far as deciding to go Navy versus say army or Marines? Did you just have no interest in those branches?
1: Yeah, I, um, so I, I went to a private military Catholic school, believe that or not. They, they, they probably don't have those because that's probably politically incorrect these days. But I went to private military Catholic school from kindergarten till I graduated high school. Uh, when I got into high school, it was actual Army ROTC. Uh, I did that for two years. Uh, and then the, I didn't they wouldn't let me back in. They said I wasn't squared away enough to go back in for the last two years uh, in high school. And so, uh, but, you know, my dad was the Air Force Monk, I, I hung around my dad and my uncle all the time. And so I, it was never a question in my mind what I was going to do, I was going to go be an Air Force crypto tech like dad and my uncle were. And I was going to go do all that secret crap that they never talked about. And so uh, that, that's what I wanted to do. Uh, the year I graduated 89, the air force had a freeze in recruiting and so I, I i had already i did delayed entry the delayed entry program where you swear in and then and then like the day before you leave you swear in again or whatever it is it's like basically a commitment i think is is what it boils down to but and so when when they did the freeze my recruiter's like listen jr come to the office every friday after school and just check in with me and whenever this thing's over we'll we'll, we'll you know we'll get you right in i'm like okay And so I went every Friday and one Friday I went and the lights were out at the recruiting station. Like there was nobody there. And this is back when all four of them, you know, you're familiar with San Antonio, you know, right across from Market Square where there was an office building there and all five branches were there, the recruiters for all five branches. And so, yeah. And then right across the street from there in between the two was the MEP station where you would go, you know, do your physical and do your swearing and all that stuff.
0: So, you're talking about um, downtown, downtown then?
1: Yeah, downtown San Antonio.
0: Yeah, I live like a mile away from downtown.
1: Yeah, it's a, that's it, crazy. It across the street from the Market Square, literally. Oh, wow.
0: That's and, uh, nuts.
1: Yeah, that's old school, man. I mean, I'm dating myself, right?
0: So, what year, I was going to ask, what year did you come in? Because I'm trying to think of the last time the Air Force had like a freeze on recruiting. What year? 89. Oh, okay. Okay. Perfect.
1: I graduated 89, and I actually didn't leave for boot camp until April of 90. Oh, okay. So let's
0: talk about boot camp for you. Uh, Mr. Air Force guy here suddenly is being thrown in. Well, at that point in time, the Navy had three different boot camps. Uh, Orlando, Great Mistakes, or Great Lakes, and San Diego. Where did they end up sending you?
1: I went to San Diego. Yeah, I went to San Diego and... And uh, that was interesting. You know, I'd never been away from home, really. Been to Mexico when I was a little kid, but that was it. And so all of a sudden I'm away. And, you know, there's, you know, if you're familiar with that base, you know that on one side was hookers walking up and down the street, you know, across the fence. And then on the other side of the fence was the Marines having boot camp, which our DIs on a regular basis marched us up to the fence to watch them have boot camp they knew how good we had it it was an evil plan
0: and it probably worked too so so as someone who never really traveled um outside of you know where you grew up what what was the final day of saying goodbye to your family and getting on a bus to get on a plane to fly out to California like
1: um Again, I, I grew up knowing exactly what I was going to do when I graduated. So, you know, dad had a party for me at the house that coincided with his birthday. And all our family was there. And um, I didn't have any. I mean, I was ready to go. And uh, I had gone to to, SAC, to San Antonio College for a semester, uh, ran out of money. And, you know, I was waiting for this thing to open so that I could so I could join, and um, and when you know I ended up going to the Navy, and they're like, "Let's get you in now, let's go, boom," and and so I'd been waiting for this. You could almost say my whole life I had been waiting. I mean, I can show you pictures where kindergarten I was wearing a uniform because the the grade school I went to, kindergarten through eighth, was we wore the old Eisenhower style khaki uniforms uh, with the Eisenhower jacket, and then of course in high school. That was kinder through eighth. And then when I got to high school, we were wearing U.S. Army greens. And so, I mean, literally my whole life, I've been waiting to go follow my father's footsteps. And so the leaving part was good. You know, I was like, yes, this is it. I'm finally there. I'm going to get to go. Um, I really, hindsight tells me, I wish I would have been able to go crypto Air Force. And not because, you know, because I pick on the, on the Chair Force guys all the time, but uh, I love them, but, you know, I don't know if I had to do it again, I'd probably do the Navy again, just because of the the technology programs that they have so much. I mean, the air force has great stuff too, but yeah. Yeah.
0: I'm you know. helping a, I'm helping a friend decide right now whether Navy or, or air force. And it's funny because our schools, the Navy schools are a lot longer and a lot more um, detailed. It seems like than the air force she was looking at. Um, oh God. What was it that she was looking at? She was looking at, um, cybersecurity and not having a big computer background, I was surprised to see, I think the Air Force's cybersecurity school was like eight weeks and the Navy's was 32 weeks. Wow. Yeah, big difference. So as you, um, what rate did you choose? I forgot to ask you that.
1: So they, uh, I had hearing, I had to get a waiver for my hearing. And so they, I didn't, wasn't able to get like uh, ET, which is electronics tech. So I ended up going IC, interior communications, um, which is kind of like, you know, I did a lot of, a lot of, I did more electronics than I did electrical stuff, but they called us low voltage electricians. And uh, I
0: am not going to ask why. I, I can know, only imagine.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it's one of those things like the electricians, like you're not, you're not electrician and the ETs, you're not electronics tech. And we, so we were like stuck in the middle. <laughs> uh, but when we were out to sea we controlled all that went on site tv so if you pissed us off you know you might get like you know little dog on a prairie or some <laughs> stupid movie that we decided you were going to watch while we watched the good stuff
0: <laughs> nice so how was your time i mean like you said you'd been military pretty much since birth as far as uh, your catholic military high school which just seems like a Total oxymoron for some reason. Um, you you were doing that. You were doing um, ROTC, but then the day came that you showed up at RTC San Diego. Um, were you prepared for it?
1: No. Uh, everything I thought I knew. Everything. I, I will tell you this: growing up military uh, in a military grade school. Um, by the time I left, uh, eighth grade, I was a company commander. Um, and so I had, I don't know, 40 fourth graders. That was my company. Um, and then when I went to high school, I was part of the company, you know, part of the squad. And so you got both sides, you got the leadership part. And then of course in, in ROTC, they teach you leadership. You you do some leadership training, but, uh, I went there. And being as short as I was, you know, they, they did ask everybody, anybody who had any kind of R O T C or whatever. And so there were like four or five of us. And, you know, we were the ones who ended up being the squad leaders, the RCPO, the the guide on, and the right guide. I started out at guide on, but I, I couldn't walk a straight line. So they, they, they moved me over to right guide and uh and I got to carry the flags. But you know, did it prepare me? Uh, I would say in some in some instances, yes, because there were some kids there that I'm pretty sure, like Mama, had never let them out of the house, much less, you know, get on a plane and go go to a different state and get screamed at. So. Yeah, um,
0: I, I, we, I had that in my boot camp. I swear to you, I really do not know whether the guy was speaking the truth or not, but he claimed it was his first time with functional indoor plumbing. Ah. So, um, yeah. So as always, I have to ask everyone, there's a day in boot camp that no matter what service you're in, you go to this little building and they hand you some masks, not like the COVID masks, but the ones that go over your whole face. And in that room, they decide to play a joke on you and put gas in the room and make you choke. How did you respond?
1: Uh, That was, yeah, that was pretty weird. Um, uh, I've always had a weird, uh, I don't say, I'm not like a glutton for punishment or anything, but uh, I coughed a little bit, but I thought the whole thing was cool, man. I was like, oh my God, this is awesome. They're gassing us. (laughs) And, uh, you know, you got to take your mask off and, and recite the general orders, you know, and and I was like, yeah, yeah, ask me. But, you know, I was kind of an overachiever. And so I didn't, they didn't really call on me a lot because, you know, when they told us to read something, I read it and I learned it. And they told us to do something, I did it. And so uh, I, I didn't, you know, they would always pick on the guys who couldn't answer. That way they could punish everybody, you know, and, and they knew who to pick on.
0: <laughs> so you, um, you, Get through boot camp. I'm assuming that you were in pretty good physical condition uh, with ROTC and just having that military mindset going into boot camp. So, and not like Navy boot camp is really that difficult, mm-hmm. except when they do the off the books training, then it gets a little, a little difficult. But you graduate. Did you come back here to Texas for a bit and do like the recruiter assistance thing, or did you just go straight out to your A school?
1: Yeah, so my school was on NTC, RTC, it was in San Diego, and uh, I think I came home for a week, and then I had to go back for, uh, for my school, which was six months. It's a two-year school, in you know, basic electricity, electronics, and advanced electronics condensed to six months, and so uh, had I been paying attention, which I wasn't because nobody told me back then. I would have got all those credit hours and I could have had an associate's degree in electronics when I graduated, but I didn't, I didn't know. And nobody told me I didn't, I didn't care.
0: Wait, you mean from your A school, you, you would have had enough credits. Yeah. That's crazy.
1: Yeah. And, And then, and then the, you have to, I did they have a program. So you, you graduate A school, you go to your ship and then within one year working with your, you know, whoever you were working with, your, your boss or whatever in your rate they would sign off on the, on the time and the hours. And then you could submit all that stuff. And then the Navy would give you an associate's degree. And I didn't know that. I, I didn't know. Nobody told me. I didn't know until I was already an E5 that they even had that program. Oh, wow. I had a kid that was an E4 that asked me to sign some stuff. And I'm like, man, what do you want me to do? I mean, well, I hang out with you. I said, yeah, Well, that's all I need, man. You you know, that you're teaching me. I'm like, okay. But uh, I wish I, you know, I wish I would have known. I just, I just, you know, there wasn't, it's just like when you got out back then, nobody told you, Hey man, you know, whatever you have in your metal record, you should probably go file that at the local DAV or something, you know?
0: Oh yeah. Yeah, Like don't, don't throw the thing away. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So being a, being a Texas born and raised boy with very little travel experience, um, how was San Diego for you during a school?
1: Uh, the first weekend out on Liberty, I got robbed by, uh, some guys right outside the base playing a little peanut game thing. It was a, they swindled you. I'm like, Hey man, the ball's right. They goes, yeah, you're right, man. You know? And if you got 50 bucks I'll you know, I'll give you a hundred, you know, I'm like, well, I got 50 bucks. I just got paid, man. Cause you know, I'm a dumb, I mean, I was literally ignorant to the street, completely ignorant. Uh, and so, you know, I lost my first paycheck, you know, the first day out on Liberty, um, you grow up real quick, you know. I mean, really quick. And then I got rolled on the transit going from 32nd Street back to NTC because that's where the the uh, EN clubs were. They were right by the front gate, and uh, and it was the same guy that took me for the money. Uh, him and a couple of guys, you know, worked me over on the on the train going going to the other base. And, uh, and lifted me up about 300 bucks. And so um, I met some guys from Texas and I met up with those guys about six months later and there were four of us and two of them and we were on the train. And by the time we got back, we had about 3000 in cash because they had been taking money from lots of people. Turns out they were both military. And so we drug them off the train and we dropped them off at the brig on the way in and apparently oh, wow. they, they had been looking for them. And so um uh, yeah, I, I didn't know nothing. Man, I was god, I was so ignorant. Uh I didn't know. I mean, I was, you know, my mom and dad really did raise me very sheltered. I went to private military school from kindergarten till I graduated high school, you know. And dad was my dad was a wild child back in the day, he was completely crazy. He used to get arrested. For bootlegging and all kinds of stuff, but when it came to me, man, I wasn't allowed to do anything, and if he didn't like my friends, I couldn't go out with him. I mean he was very, very strict, and so uh,
0: that's crazy
1: getting so, out in the real world it was crazy
0: so back in those days were you uh was your liberty during school in uniform Mm-mm. okay, so you were in civilian clothes
1: yeah, we were in civilian clothes
0: yeah, I was trying to figure out if they knew that you were military because you were in your libo attire or whether you were in just some mother mark that they were taking money from
1: dude. You know, it, it's not hard to tell the military in those towns, That's buzz true. haircut, tennis shoes with blue jeans, you know, and a t-shirt. Everybody's, I mean,
0: Oh yeah. And have you ever been around the Marines, uh, especially the staff NCOs and officers, you can point those guys out in their Liberty attire from a mile away. <laughs> yeah. They don't and even t- wear a hat. <laughs> Typically it's, uh, what is it that I see all the time? Khaki, khaki cargo pants or khaki cargo shorts, uh, polo tucked in. Um, and <laughs> I think it's like bottom two buttons buttoned and then the haircut and you're like, yeah, you're a, you're a goddamn Marine. Go away. <laughs>
1: yeah. It's all over written all over them. Yeah.
0: So, Uh, let's see, I'm doing, I'm trying to do math in my head. So this is probably guessing about 1990 when you get done with your, um, a school.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think I went to my first ship in 91. Okay. So did you get sent out to the Gulf,
0: um, on your ship? Cause that would have been, well, I guess that would have been after the Gulf war.
1: 91, 92, we were in, actually, I think 92, we were, or 90. I don't remember. It was 91. I graduated boot camp in 90. Went to A school for six months. So I guess 91 when I was on my first ship. 91, 92. We were supposed to go to the Gulf of Oman. Oh, okay. And we sailed. And we, we, we got about halfway from San Diego to Hawaii. And uh, our boiler broke down. And we floated the ocean for three days till they came and got us with tugs. And we thought, well, man, they're going to pull us to Hawaii. We're going to refit and we're going to keep going. You know, we're all excited. That's not how the Navy works. That's not how the Navy works. They sent ocean going tugs all the way from L.A. uh, out to get us. And they took us back to Long Beach.
0: And so From L.A.? Well, I guess, what, three days out to sea? That's really not. you You barely started the crossing.
1: Yeah, it's not horribly far. I say we were halfway, but we weren't. What uh? What ship were you on? Oh, the first ship was the USS Hepburn, FF-1055.
0: Oh, so you were on a small boy, a little tiny frigate. Oh, yeah. For those who are watching or listening who don't know about Navy ships, the smallest of the Navy ships are the frigates. Yeah. Then what? The destroyers, cruisers, and then aircraft carriers, obviously.
1: Battleships and then carriers, yeah. If they so, don't have that, they don't do battleships anymore,
0: I guess. So again, you wanted to be a fly boy doing crypto. Here you are a sailor from Texas in a landlocked, grew up in a landlocked city. Yeah. How, how was your first
1: few days at sea? Um, I got a little wheezy the first day and, uh, I had this old chief. He's like, Hey man, just put a dip in. Cause everybody knows like the day you check on the boat, everybody knows if you dip or not, you know, cause they have to find out who they're going to bum a dip from when, when, <laughs> when they went out. And so, um, I had this old chief, and uh, he was a rowdy dude. Um, his license plate on his Bronco said Asada and it stood for eat shit and die asshole. And I, I was like, I like this guy. <laughs> and so he's like, JR he goes, put a dip in and get underneath the one of the vents, you know, get some air on you. And I'm like, all right. And so uh, after that, man, I, I like I, I didn't throw up or anything. There were people that were literally in their racks, you know, with trash cans for days, you know, on the first on the first out to sea. Um, I man, I I grew my sea legs almost instantly, and I absolutely, in fact, I preferred being out to sea more than I did being in port. Oh, nice.
0: So, what did you guys do for those days when you were boiler boiler blah, blah, boilerless? that's that fast.
1: We actually had to sleep topside because we didn't have without the, the the generators we had no kind of cooling or anything inside the ship. And so we were it was get, it was hot as all get out. And so we were actually all sleeping, you know, take your pillow and your in that wool blanket that that was probably issued to somebody in World War 1. And uh, you threw it out on the non-skid, you know, on the non-skid surfaces on the flight deck, and you went to sleep.
0: And so, were you guys part of like a ready group or um, like a task force, or were you guys just steaming to Hawaii on your own?
1: We were supposed to meet up with whoever we were going to go to the Gulf with in Hawaii. Oh, okay. So, we so were, you got- we were actually a replacement. We weren't the first on the list. <laughs> oh God. So. so- it- we were like the seed team to begin with.
0: <laughs> so you guys were, for lack of a better way of putting it, out there alone by yourselves.
1: Yeah, pretty much.
0: That Thank God the Cold War was over by then.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, the first couple of years, right, the first full year that we were uh, – we re- refitted the ship, and then we got out, and we were, we were doing ops all over the, the western seaboard. And we actually – uh, came across a couple of Russian subs one time up by uh, by Oregon, by Alaska, going towards Alaska. And you want to talk about, you know, the officers, they all wear khaki. And so when the officers sweat, you know, like, the man, they're sweating it. We used to call it gravy, right? I don't know if y'all called it that, but like, man, there's all kinds of gravy. You do, You don't want to go to combat, man. That place is full of gravy. Because uh, all those officers, man, they were all freaking out, you know? But uh, some of them had never been to a ship like I had never been. But I thought it was cool, man. I'm like, really? It's a Russian sub? It's a real Russian sub? And like, how far are they? You know, are they underneath this? Where are they at? You know, it was cool. And, uh, but I guess I'm, you know, I'm a little twisted, but I mean, that's, I thought it was awesome. And, um, but yeah, so we, we turned, we had done a lot of that. Uh, I forget where we were going with that, man. This happens a lot to me. I haven't had enough coffee yet.
0: Uh, Not a problem. Not a problem at all. Cause I got TBI, so I don't know where I'm
1: at 90% of the time.
0: (laughs) So how long did you stay on board, uh, the frigate?
1: So the first ship, uh, the Hepburn I was on for two years, I left in 92 and I went to another frigate on the East coast, USS Truett, FF 1095. And, uh, and we actually came down and commissioned the, uh, the base in Ingleside home port Ingleside. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, We were the first ship that was officially, um, that was our home port.
0: So did you go to Norfolk and then steam down to Ingleside?
1: Yeah. I went from San Diego, drove home for Christmas with two other guys that were coming back to Texas. I bought a truck, a little Nissan, and I drove straight out to Virginia, um, got on that ship, and then um we uh went up to to Rhode Island in February to do water training, you know, where they it's like a makeshift ship and they act like, like, like you like you hit an iceberg or something and water's coming in and you gotta shore it up from the inside. And um in, and in the, February. February, yeah, in friggin' Rhode Island and they were pumping water in from the ocean. I'm from South Texas. We don't do that. You're uh, a United States Navy sailor. Yes, you do. (laughs) Yeah. All right. (laughs) You're not from Texas anymore. You belong to us. But, uh, we did that. We did some training all over the, you know, the Eastern seaboard for a couple of months. And then we, we loaded up and, and we came down to Texas and, uh, that's where I spent the rest of my time. I spent the rest of my time at Ingleside. So, I mean, I know
0: it's crazy to think that, uh, Ingleside was stood up and shut down so quick. Cause when I got out in 2011, they were just shutting it down. That, 13 years. That, that was the entire length of that base. 13 years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have Naval Air Station, Corpus Christi. That looks like the base that time forgot. Oh yeah. That place is a shithole. Yeah. It is. <laughs> it is an absolute shithole.
1: Yeah.
0: So how was your time in the Gulf? And, and, uh, Mexico that is like being down at Ingleside.
1: Uh, it was pretty cool. Uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you probably the coolest thing we ever did was drug ops with the coast guard. When I was on my first ship, that was way cooler than anything else we did. Um, when I got to the second ship and we got down to Ingleside, it was being home. I was home. It didn't matter. It was, you know, Corpus and it was two hours away. It was home. Um, and so I had family in Corpus, you know, it was awesome. Uh, we did a, a uh, tiger cruise from Pensacola to Texas, where my dad got to ride the ship, uh, which was completely awesome. Um, and then we also did, you know, we'd go down on Roosevelt Roads to Puerto Rico and do the shoot the beach and all that stuff that everybody used to do. Uh, and it was cool because we got to meet when we were in Puerto Rico. I don't remember if they were English or Australian sailors, but their ship was moored there and you, they, hey, you want to come you have a drink? I'm like, yeah, where are we going? it's like, well, come to the boat. And I'm like, what? You got drinks on the boat? And they had a little, you know, they could go get beer and stuff on their ship. And so um, uh, that was really, you know, interesting time. But, you know, it was different, you know. Um, I think what we did to Ingleside is what every, every, you know, military base does to any city they're in. You know, like if you go to Virginia you know, back in the fifties, the Navy overran the city. And, you know, I remember when I was there, you know, in 92, late, most of 92, I guess, uh, or maybe it was 93, even, um, we, uh, there were signs, people still had signs on their lawn that said dogs and sailors keep Off grass, you know? And so I, I, I think we kind of, I, I think, I think we kind of beat Ingleside up a little bit, but, but by the same token, that little town had never had that kind of influx of money because, you know, sailors are stupid, man. They they get $800 in their pocket and they're bent to spend it all in like one night.
0: I, w- I would love to see the statistics on shitty used car dealerships popping up in <laughs> 13 years because that's the one thing I don't understand how, but. Sailors like to buy broken down shitty used cars at extremely high interest rates.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So
0: yeah, um, interesting. While you were at Ingleside, did you have an opportunity to be there during any of the uh, weather events like hurricanes or tropical storms coming through?
1: We had a hurricane. Um, and at that time, we were the first ship there they also brought down a uh an lpd which is a helicopter carrier i guess and then they they brought down the uh the entire mine sweep fleet of the navy their wooden boats literally Uh, and they brought an lph down i think is what it's called where the back opens up and they they put all these little wood boats they sail into the back of this other ship and then it closes up and it drains all the water and these basically these little wood boats are dry docked inside this massive navy ship that goes overseas. So they we had the mine sweep detachment that was there that whole uh fleet and then we had our ship and a couple others and um and it was it was just weird that the whole dynamic of us being down there and I forgot my train of thought again. What was I saying?
0: We were talking about um weather events like uh, hurricanes and tropical oh, storms.
1: So we had a hurricane. I don't remember which one it was. We had a hurricane over we there. And uh, what the mine sweeps did is they take steel cables instead of the, the rope lines that they do to moor the ship to the, to the pier. They ended up putting steel cables and then they leave the ship. Well, that was not possible for us. So we lit the boilers and our plan from what I understood, and maybe I'm not remembering this correctly, but I remember we sailed into the eye of this storm turned around and then followed it back in or something similar to that. And so I don't know if that was common practice for small Navy ships, uh, because that, I guess if you can get there quickly, you can get to the, to the calm part of the storm. And then by the time it hits shore, you know, it fizzles out and it, it didn't beat us up so bad. I think
0: someone was just messing with you guys. I, I do know. Maybe. I do know that the Navy or most navies typically will send their ships out to sea. I I don't think of racing towards the storm. Who knows? But um, speaking of seasick and all of that, how were the, how was that going into a hurricane?
1: Man, it was awesome. So everybody's sick. Uh, I think we were actually in, in the eye, but we were on the outside and they were, I think he was too close. Still. We were students, we were too close to the, to the storm. But by that time he was like, well, we're not going to go further out we're, this thing's already going to end. And we're going to turn around. So we were, we were in pretty rough seas. And uh, the captain had told everybody, if you're not actually on watch, I want you in your rack. The captain was sick. He didn't come out of his state room for like two days. And there were like three of us all from Texas, obviously that weren't sick. And so one of them was an officer and then two enlisted guys and the officer was like, well, hey, man, let's go make breakfast. I'm like, yeah, let's go. We got the whole galley to ourselves. And so we were in there making breakfast. And, and then we had like nothing to do all day. And we were hitting some pretty rough seasons. So up in the front of a, of a frigate, you have the anchor windlass, which is basically a huge spool that holds, uh, you know, a ship our size had one, 2 see, one, two, three, four, five. We had six huge lines, rope lines. That moored us when we were in port. And so this spool was about 50 feet tall. And each section was a section for a different line, you know? And so they would pull them off one at a time when they would, when we would moor up. And so we were going in there, and when the ship would take a nose dive, because you know the ship, it goes nose first, right? And then it goes down and then it comes nose up, and then it rolls to to the port and then it rolls to the starboard. And then it starts again. It goes down. Oh, uh, you know, and sometimes you're doing that simultaneously, you know, up and down. And so we went up there to the anchor windlass and we were playing games. And so when the when the boat, when the nose takes a, a dive, you jump and you get this weightlessness that comes from the boat hitting those waves so hard. And you can grab like the third or fourth rung on that big spool. And it was fun until you look down and you realize you're like, you know, 25 feet up in the air, man, I could break a leg if I fall down right now. <laughs> And so, so you ride the ship all the way down, and then when it starts going back up, you let go. And so, as you drop, the ship comes up and catches you. And so, we were doing stupid stuff like that. that that's what we did. Everybody else was sick, turning green, and we're friggin' knocking off. You know, trying to find where people got beer stashed, and you know, making breakfast. And yeah, it was fun.
0: So, what happened? What happened to you after uh, Ingleside?
1: Well, I had met my first wife in Ingleside, uh, at, uh, country down under Texas, country down under, uh, they're probably still in existence. Who knows? Um, and she was from a little town called San Diego, which was probably an hour away from Corpus, uh, moved there. Uh, we eventually moved to San Antonio. I'd never realized, man, I got divorced after nine years or almost 10 years with her, um, We were living on the south side of San Antonio. And and then I married my second wife two years later, who I'm married to now. And it wasn't until 2010, I got out in 95, and it wasn't until 2010 that I realized that I had a problem with people or that I had a problem with assimilating and I didn't ever realize it because nobody pointed it out. My current wife's like, you know, you have a serious problem. You can't sit still. Why? What, what's the problem? What are you looking for? And it was when I got the second job, this job that I got, or my, I don't know, my 14th job uh, in two years. When I, when I got the job with the NSA, it was with a private company as a contractor for the NSA. And my, my boss and his boss were both full bird colonels in the Army, both combat veterans. They hired me. And that's the first time I realized that what I had been looking for since I got out was something that was like the military. You know, I didn't realize that I had every time I changed job every two years was because I, I couldn't find what I was looking for. I mean, part of it was the money sucked, you know, I mean, until I got this job in 2010, the most I ever made was like 1175 an hour. Yeah. Part of not being able to reassimilate to society cuz even though i didn't go to combat the military does stuff to your head they yeah. make you think a certain way they make you assess things in a certain way you know you have your you have a heightened awareness of different things than people who don't go and you're always you know so things are very different and so i never realized that i had a problem uh i was pissed off because i thought man i did all this time in the military you know all this time i did 5 years right but still you do this time in the military and you get this trade. And while I was in the military, I became an E-5. I got my surface warfare qualification. I got a Navy achievement medal. I'm doing really well. I'm in a leadership program, I'm about to take my E-6 exam. I mean, I'm gonna be like, you know, I mean, as high as you can go NCO before you become a chief. And I'm, I'm you know, I had purpose and I, I had responsibility and I was in a leadership role, you know, some punk kid right out of high school that, you know, didn't have a formal education and I was able to make something of myself. And then I got out and I'm like, man, you know, why can't I fit in? Why are you so stupid? You know, Hey, why can't you get to work on time? You know, all these things drove me nuts. And So, so I bounced.
0: Let's go back for one second.
1: What made
0: you decide to get out after six years?
1: I didn't want to get out. I was in Ingleside. I was I would, had been in for four years and nine months. I extended because my uh, ex-wife was pregnant. So I wanted to make sure that the Navy paid for that. And so I was ready to reenlist. And when I did back then, the, the re-enlistment was very different than it is. To, today, I guess you can get on and like select your top three where you want to go. And if you qualify and have to have a billet, whatever. Well, I found a billet in Ingleside because it was a new base. And they had a they had a shore duty you know sima which is called shore intermediate maintenance uh, attachment or whatever. And they had a they had plenty of billets there for for my rate. And I had gone down and talked to the to the officer in charge. He's like, yeah, man, we have like four billets open. And I'm like, sweet man, I'm you know I'm rotating onto shore duty and I'd like to stay here. He's like, yeah, absolutely, man. Tell your detailer. And so back then you know like half the navy had to go through one detailer. And if you were in our program, which was training administration of reservists, it was called TAR program, uh, you had one detailer, all of TAR. Officer enlisted, no matter what rate, you had one detailer. And he was an ass. And he said, no, you're going back to San Diego. And I said, well, I know for a fact there's billets here. He goes, yeah, but I'm saving those for somebody. And so I was like, okay, well, F you, man. You know, I'm going to get out. And I had some two of the officers on board to talk me out of it why don't you go officer and you don't have to mess with any of that and i'm like no no and i was pissed off man i you know i had done really well with ic and i and uh you know i got my my pin and i got my you know my nam and i was all excited and i was like man i'm gonna keep going And i just got pissed off and i was like well screw this man i'm just gonna get out and that's what happened i got out
0: so do you um do you ever think about that maybe you could have gone reserves or Did you ever think about during that time between when you got out in 2010, uh, giving it a second chance as you were trying to figure out what was going on?
1: Yeah, in um, 2012 is when it really hit me. I finally was around people, like-minded people. You know, I started my job in 2010. Uh, I wanna say of the 60 people that are employed in the San Antonio office, uh, 40 some are all Military, you know, so it was a really heavy military. You start to learn things from all the different branches and how things work, uh, including the Navy. My division officer on my second ship, it was her first duty station. She was a butter bar, she was an ensign. She just made full bird like a few years ago. Or in, in the Navy, it's not full bird, right? But it's, she's an 06. And I was talking to her and in 2012, I was going to try to go back in and start with the reserves and then try to go active duty. Uh, I regretted leaving from the time I left. Uh, I didn't know it immediately. I was just so mad at first, but when I realized how hard it was to get a job making decent money. um, But I I don't know, I, I, I can't, I'd have to sit down and think about all those years to tell you why I didn't do that sooner. Because had I done it sooner, I would have been able to go back in and it would have changed my life. Yeah. So I I take it,
0: um, just by putting two and two together, I take it you kept your clearance then? um, Did you have to, uh, because you guys were
1: TS, right? And no, we were, yeah. I think I only had a secret when I was in. I think the IC, I had a secret and the only reason I had a secret was because uh, we had a repair locker that had ASROC missiles in it. And I, I worked on the alarm system uh, for that. And so I had to have a secret, but no, when I, when I got on with, with COP and I, the, the company I worked for, CLPT, I tell everybody they're the goose that laid the golden egg. Best company I've ever worked for ever. Started me out at $20 an hour, I left at over, I don't know, it was crazy. It was like 36 or so, but an hour, I don't know. And then we were allowed to work all the overtime we wanted. And so incredible place to work. I had to do my whole clearance all over again from scratch. I mean, they went and beat down my mom's neighbors and my high school friends and teachers and people I worked for, you know, guys in black suits would show up, it was crazy.
0: I, I understand why they do it, but it's such a pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah,
1: Just getting your 86 done is nuts. Yeah. Try to get all the dates and all the places that you worked, And of course I had changed every two years. So that was, a, that took me about four months to get all that stuff down. You probably had a pretty thick SF86. Yeah, it was huge, man. I still have a copy of it, hard copy.
0: Don't lose it. Nope. So what got you interested in working for the NSA?
1: Well, the, the company that I went to work for COPT. Um, I was a Mason at the time and I was a Shriner, which you have to be a master Mason to be a Shriner, you know, Freemasonry. Uh, everybody knows the Shriners from the circus they uh, and they drive in the parades. They drive little cars, you know, with little fez, fez hats. And uh, uh, I was in all that. And my my One of the guys that was in my Masonic Lodge, he had a place up. Uh, we both had a place up in Bernie on the river. And I was out there helping him one day. He was, he was putting a tent up or something. He's like, hey, man, do you know anybody who does HVAC? And I'm like, no, not really. I said, I know one guy, but he's not going to want to leave where he's at. Man, He's got it made. He says, well, we, we, we pay pretty good. And I'm like, well, what do y'all pay? He's like, well, we start our guys out at $20 an hour. And I'm like, dude, I can do HVAC. You know, he's like, have you ever done it? I was like, no, but it's all electronics, right? He says, well, yeah, there's a lot of electronics. I said, okay, well, I got certifications in electronics, pneumatics, hydraulics. I mean, you know, I'm a certified welder. You know, I, I got lots of qualifications bad. I mean, I was making eleven seventy five an hour, right? $20 an hour? That's insane. And so he got me an interview, and I talked to two full bird colonels, and like I said, I was raised for the military, and... I loved my time in the military. I regret ever getting out. And so sitting down with these two full birds was awesome, you know, just shooting the breeze with them. And, uh, and I got picked up and I got promoted. Oh man, 18 months after I was there, I got a promotion and I got a 28% increase, um, which was just ridiculous to me. I was like, what? I said, did you get these numbers right? You know, he's like, well, yeah, man, you, we underestimated you know where you were at with your knowledge and stuff like that. And so um, it was an incredible place to work. I, I had to get a TS, a compartmented TS with tickets because of our customer, because of who they were. My primary function at that facility was to make sure that there was 42 degree water where it needed to be. And so I worked on pumps, I worked on huge chillers, I worked on rooftop air conditioning. I worked on special uh, computer room air conditioning. I worked on, you know, I did a lot of electronics, which was awesome. And I did a lot of training.
0: So you were the, the guy who made sure all the stuff worked. You didn't really do any NSA type work at all.
1: Yeah, I didn't do any. And it was funny because when I got my clearance, I just assumed that since I had a compartment in TS, but I could go home and, and my dad was gonna like, he was just gonna, you know, give me the whole ship. He was gonna tell me everything about everything I ever wanted to know. And I was gonna get all these secrets, man, that I've been wondering about since I was a kid. And he, I walked into the house and he looked at the badge. He says, oh, that's nice. And I'm like, but I have a clearance now. He goes, yeah, yeah, you do. Good man, keep your damn mouth shut. And that was it, man. I was like, well, aren't we going to have a conversation? He's like, no. He goes, whatever I have in here, I'm taking to the grave with me. That's what I signed up for. And that's what you signed up for, you know, and, and yeah, being in that environment, you do come in contact with stuff, you know, it's inevitable. That's why I had a TS compartmented TS because doing what I did, you know, you go all over the place. And so, but um, would you,
0: did you understand what you saw?
1: Um, eh, uh, I don't know.
0: I mean, I always look at it like if I walk by a computer screen and there's something top secret on there, I may know that little bit of information, but in the context of what the intel or information really means, yeah, um, probably I- no idea.
1: I think, the, I think that's part of the design based on people like um, – most of them have been Navy people, right, who have sold secrets. But uh, that first guy, the first biggest one, he was a Navy guy. Uh,
0: Snowden was, was Army, remember.
1: Snowden was Army, and so was that other guy that became a girl.
0: Oh, um, yeah, I can't think of uh, – Manning, that's the only part I remember. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that guy. So so those two guys were Army. But the, the largest amount of intelligence that we've lost uh, because of internal espionage or traitors, as far as I'm concerned, they're traitors. Uh, was well, There were two Navy guys. Uh, one yeah. of them was back in like the 80s, I think.
0: Yeah, Ames, I think, was the, the big guy. Yeah. He, I think so, he got like his son involved, if it's the one I'm thinking of. Because there was one that convinced his son to spy.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so. And then, like, Snowden changed everything, but it's the reason why everything is compartmented now. No one person has the big picture, you know, and that's that's part of our, you know, what really pisses me off is a couple of presidents ago, you had a guy that would get out there and publicly tell the world about troop movements and, hey, we're going to move out on this date, you know, and we're going to do this, to let them know, I mean, you know, you don't do that. You can tell the public after the public doesn't need to know what you do to keep them safe. All they need to know is that when you get on an airplane, some bozo is not gonna run it into the ground or some bozo is not gonna run it into a a building, right? You know, that's one thing I learned working for that outfit for 10 years. And, And something that my wife learned too, I don't really care what they listen to. I don't care what they look at. I personally signed stuff where they could come to my house anytime they wanted. They could look through my cell phone anytime they wanted. You're familiar with that. When you, when you get a, a TS, you know, compartmented TS, man, your life is basically an open book and they can open it up whenever they want to. Uh, and so, you know, the general public has no clue what it takes to keep our country safe. They really don't. And so I, I really hate the, you know, people like whine and cry about all that stuff, but
0: I don't know. I, I, am I sit in a slightly different position, um, but that's like neither here nor there to this conversation. Um,
1: you, that's <laughs> the one you and I can have offline. <laughs> yeah. Let,
0: let's just say, um, I am security adverse. Uh, to, to me, freedom and rights are far more important than security. Yeah. Coming from a guy who got blown up in Iraq. I, I, I'm i still 100% down with that belief system. So anyways, back to you, because this is about you, not me. <laughs> so um, speaking of which, how hard was it for your wife to deal with a guy who went to work and couldn't talk about it?
1: Um she had problems with it at first it was uh i think i kind of groomed her for that because when i was a mason you know you would go to lodge meetings and you didn't talk about that when you got home and so um you know connie kind of figured out when i was doing the mason thing she's like well this is no different except that what you're doing now actually has purpose as opposed to the lodge you know that it doesn't have the same purpose as national security
0: So let me ask you this about the Masons um, without divulging any Mason secrecy. I have noticed uh, with military friends I have now that there's been a big jump in, especially Navy guys joining the Masonry. Is there, or has there always been a big military presence within that organization?
1: Yeah, I I think you... um... The statistics, because I was in charge of my lodge at one point. Our lodge is called Victory Lodge in in San Antonio. I'm not a mason anymore. I demitted and I demitted from the shrine. I'm not I'm not part of either of those organizations uh, in any way, shape or form. And I don't represent their values in any way, shape or form. um, And I don't have anything negative to say about it. But there is a there is a cycle that you can document on paper. Well, they can. For somebody who's got a bunch of secrets, they put a lot of stuff on paper, which is kind of funny. <laughs> they can tell you every time that I've been to a Lodge meeting, you know, 20 years from now. And so I, I can tell you when George Washington went to Lodge by the documents and records that are available oh, to wow. other reasons. Yeah, you can tell every time that George Washington went to Lodge and and all those other, you know, famous guys that were Masons. Um, but it. Uh, there's every war, after every war or every major conflict settles down, there's a huge influx uh, in masonry. And, and the way it was always explained to me is that there's a camaraderie within that brotherhood. Today, we just do it as veterans, right? right. We just decide that we're going we're gonna to hang out with other vets and we're going to take care of one another. And we, we develop that camaraderie outside of the military and outside of the VFW and outside of the American Legion, we, we do it on our own, now. Uh, but, but traditionally, you know, that wasn't always the case. And so you'd see these huge influxes into the lodges after every war. Um, and that's never really gone away. And so, you know, the, you see these bumper stickers sometimes that says, to be one, ask one. And so what happens is that you have this huge group of Masons, right, that are military, and they pass it, literally pass it down to the next generation of military guys, and so uh, my son wasn't interested in it at all, but there's a lot of father-son, grandson, great-grandsons that are in masonry, and, um, and you know, just if my son was in the military and he got into the lodge like I did, he probably would have, some of the guys that he served with would have gone into the military too, and so you kind of always have that, you know, that influx, and it does offer brotherhood it offers a kinship you know that if you're you know uh there's lodges everywhere so let's just say if you're out in odessa where there's nothing for a million miles um you go to a lodge out there in odessa you know now you can have that brotherhood that you had while you were serving active duty
0: yeah it sounds like um well i guess the big question is do so are they actively recruiting? Is a secret society actually actively recruiting or is it um, more word of mouth and, Hey, this guy would make a great member type deal.
1: Yeah. So they, they um, <laughs> you learn how to get people to ask you questions mm-hmm. by bylaws. I wasn't like, say I wanted you, I said, I, man, Tommy's an awesome dude. He'd make a great, you know, member to this, to this lodge, but I can't ask you, hey, Tommy, you know, would you want to come check out my lodge? What I can do is invite you to dinner. So you come to dinner, you meet the other guys, right? Vets always hang together. It's just a common thing. Uh, Our particular lodge, the one that I was a member of in San Antonio is chock full of veterans and police. And so you brought a cop or, or a veteran to the lodge, they were going to meet other vets and stuff like that, and so it was really cool. Um, first time I ever met a three-star general was at my Masonic lodge. Oh wow! Yeah, he was cool. He's a really cool dude. Uh, and so, you know, there's a lot of military, and and I, you know, it's it's just a natural progression of things. You know? Yeah, I mean,
0: because you see, hopefully, it's not the same way with the Masons, but you see with. Um... The VFW, the American Legion, those things are dying on the vine right now.
1: They are.
0: And then COVID on top of that definitely hasn't helped. But um, I'm a member of the military Order of the Purple Heart. And I will tell you, I tried to be a good member, a show up to meetings member, but it just didn't feel right. Yes, other vets were there. Uh, other people who had the same stupid fucking purple thingy I have. Um, were there. But there was very few OIF, OEF, OE, OE guys. And overwhelming, I would say if you were to break it down by the numbers, 3% OIF, OEF, 90% uh, Vietnam and the rest were between Korea and World War Two. For obvious reasons, those guys are really pushing it. And I think I think back in 2014, 15, when I was involved, we had three or only three or four um, World War II guys left that were still actively involved coming to meetings. Uh, I think they had like 10 of them that were uh, in, you know, uh, long-term care, but everyone else that was part of the chapter 10 years earlier were already dead. So it seems like these things may be going away. Maybe hopefully the Masons won't, uh, and hopefully they can fill something. But I do have a question for you. What color was your tiny car?
1: My tiny car was gold.
0: (laughs) Are those assigned or do you make them? (laughs) yourself?
1: You join units. And so the, the cars that we had, it looked like a dune buggy with a, with a hood on it, a a sharp hood like that. And, um, and ours had Honda 250 motorcycle engines. in it. Oh, wow. So we could literally like go fast. The other, all the rest of them, they all got little lawnmower engines and uh, they had like little Model T's and, and, you know, we had the guys that had like little Indy cars and like, yeah, but mine's got reverse. Okay, I'm going to do donuts around you while you're going in reverse, you know? And so we would always, and then like, we would do maneuvers where, where the way you learn it is I aim at the guy's back tire. I keep my eyes focused on that back tire and I'm full throttle. And so we're doing crisscross patterns. And so when you cross, you can literally feel the exhaust blowing on you from the other car. And uh, it was, it was a lot of fun, man. <laughs> it was. <laughs> now that is the shrine. That is the, the Shriners of America. They're called the playground of Masonry. And uh, they, they have 22, there's probably more now, hospitals worldwide. All they do is burn and um, what do you call it? Like with bones and stuff where they have-
0: Like orthopedics? Orthopedic. So orthopedic.
1: All they do is orthopedic and I think they do cleft palate also. They do cleft palate uh, surgeries. In fact, the uh, you know everybody says that BAMC is the world-renowned burn hospital, right? Right. Those doctors trained at the burn hospital- in Galveston at the Shriners burn hospital. Oh, wow. Yeah. And now, in fact, the guy who developed a program of growing skin was the lead doctor uh, for the shrine. He's an okay. army, doctor. he's a retired army doc.
0: That makes sense. I mean, Bamsi, I, as a patient that was at Bamsi and in the burn ward, I would say hands down, it's in the top two or three burn facilities. I mean, the stuff I had was was barely even talkable compared to some of the guys who were coming back 70, 80% burned and survived. Not only survived, but thrived now. Um, trying to get a friend of mine on the show who was about 85% third degree burns and he is thriving. That being said, he um, the for the military, it's hands down the best treatment facility in the world. Yeah. I don't know where it sits in terms of the rest of the, the world outside of the military so hold on one second my ac just popped on yay so anyways with you how did you go from masons to shriners
1: so you, you have to be a master mason uh and it's set up just like the regular guilds out in town you know like an electrician you start out as an apprentice you learn some stuff you test and you become a journeyman you learn some more stuff you test you become a master the masonry is set up on that same premise it goes back to and masonry will will, it finds its roots uh, in the building of king solomon's temple that's where they find their roots the knights templars all that stuff all masons the um they had guilds and so you had to learn the different ones you do work nowadays it's rhetoric it's all rhetoric it's all questions and answer stuff and so you become a master mason and then, when you're done with that, then you can join all these other appending bodies. And some of them are the York Rite and and, uh, and, uh, York Rite and the Scottish Rite. And then you can join the, the uh, Shriners if you want. All Shriners are Master Masons. Not all Master Masons are Shriners. Oh. Some Master Masons don't want nothing to do with that nonsense. It goes on. It really is a lot of fun. You know, you, you host the circuses and
0: again, for a secret society. Um, Now that I know that the Shriners are part of the Masons, that just makes it seem so weird. (laughs) And I'm trying to picture uh, George Washington driving around in a mini um, in a tiny horse drawn carriage with a pony (laughs) with his little hat on.
1: I I, I will tell you one one quick story about about uh, the best experience I had with that. My daughter, who And if you've got daughters, anybody listening, if you have 14-year-old daughters or teenage daughters, do not let them have the internet till they're 40. But <laughs> the, uh, my daughter had internet. She met some kid on Xbox 360 Live. And when she graduated high school, he sent her a visa and some money and a plane ticket. And she went to New Zealand, and she's been there ever since. And so the first time she told us she was going to visit, I was like, oh, hell no. No, you're not. And Connie's like, you can't stop her. The guy already sent her a ticket and he sent her money. And, and uh, I was like, okay, I can fix this. And so I was, I was at the time, I was the, I was the CEO of my lodge. I was the, the head guy of my lodge. So there's a book that we have that says every lodge uh, that we talk to in the whole world. And so I found the one, in the little town where she was going to go to. My daughter didn't know any of this stuff. Uh, she was going to Hamilton, New Zealand, so I look up Hamilton, New Zealand, I find the lodge in Hamilton, and I contact the secretary, and the secretary was a Lutheran pastor, and I got him on the phone, and I'm like, listen, I said, I need a favor, I said, my daughter is going to New Zealand, we don't even know who this kid is, we didn't know if he's real, and so what I want to do is I'm going to send her a coin to take to you when she gets there, she's supposed to do it within three days of arriving, and I just want you guys to you know, shake the guy down. I mean, check him out. And the guy said, well, let me have his name and everything. And, and we'll, we'll look in, into him before he gets here, before she gets here. And I'm like, okay. So I gave him all the information I had. And the guy calls me back and he's like, Hey, listen, uh, you know, this guy's had the same job for three years. He worked at this place before that he worked at this other place from the time he graduated high school. These are his two best friends. He lives with his mom at this address. This is the kind of car he drives. Uh, This is how he voted the last term. Uh, I mean, they had done like this full FBI NSA investigation on this kid. And I was like, what in the world? And so I I had a coin from our our Grand Lodge. I am on my daughter. When my daughter finally had to come tell me, hey, dad, I'm going to go to New Zealand. I'm like, what? No, you're not. It's like, well, I already have a ticket. So I was playing along, all right? So I said, well, where are you going? She's like, New Zealand. I said, well, I know a guy from New Zealand that I met last year because every year they have a grand communication and all the masons from the state go to this grand communication. It's where we do our bylaws every year and all that. It's a big, big four day deal. So I told Daniel, I met a guy from New Zealand last year at the Grand Lodge. And uh, I said, I've got his address. If I give you a coin, you know, when you get there, would you send it to him? And she's like, yeah, where is it at? And I'm like, I don't know, some little town called Hamilton. She goes, Dad, that's where I'm going. And I'm like, no way. And I'm like, well, let me write a letter and you just hand deliver it. And she's like, okay. And so sure enough, man, I put a coin and I wrote a letter to the secretary who had I already been talking to. Danielle got there, the second day she was there, Brad took her to go to the lodge. They separated them and the ladies talked to Danielle and all the guys interrogated the kids some more. And, uh, and then in 2014, when I went, I got to go meet all those guys. And it turns out that the Lodge is a bunch of former military and law enforcement from England, Australia, and New Zealand, all in that Lodge. And so there's a bunch of seasoned, you know, investigators and stuff.
0: <laughs> you are not really giving people any comfort with this story about the Masons running the secret world government.
1: But, you know, there was nothing...
0: It was. They found out how the guy voted.
1: Yeah, I don't know how they found that out. That was kind of weird. Uh, unless he, unless he put <laughs> signs out in front of his house or something. I don't know, but it, it was. What I was talking to mostly is the fact that that fraternity is so tight. That's a guy on the other side of the world that I did not know. But yeah. just because I was in charge of my lodge, I instantly had credit with him. And he was willing to do a little research for me, for the sake of my family.
0: Well, what you're what you're literally describing is the Navy Chief's mess. Oh, um, there's even now I could be like, hey. Um, and in fact, in all honesty, I do. have a neighbor who is in the Navy. I can get his name and say, hey, tell me about this this guy. I can call up any chief, active duty or retired that I know, and say, hey, got a neighbor uh seems a little lost he's in the navy here's his name uh take a take care of him or or help him out or do something and the mess will help and we i mean i still participate in making baby chiefs every single year officially 10 years after being medically retired so yeah what you're describing is that brotherhood uh, in our case the sea fraternity of the chief petty officers and in, in your case the creepy shadow government of the world
1: yeah they they you know they control the whole world they have they have the head of john the baptist you know in, in a room I'm, I'm kidding do they
0: do they do weird creepy
1: things with the oh, head no. no they don't do anything <laughs> like that but i just always tell people that when they look when they're like oh i've heard all stuff i heard that they do you know child uh you know sacrifices and all that like yeah man we got john the Baptist's head in the back you want to come see it you know so i just try to add to it
0: yeah. well speaking of all that there i just discovered maybe a year or two ago right across the neighborhood right across the street from my apartment actually has a lodge it's in a house do you know where pioneer flower is downtown yeah like yeah. it's on that same street by king william
1: that's um Williams lodge that's Nat Nat Washer. Okay. Two story house.
0: Uh I think it's a two story house. It's, it's an old it's an old house. Yeah. 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 yeah, I walked by one day and was like, "Wait, is that a Masonic it's a lodge?"
1: Yeah, yeah. That's, that's Nat Washer, man. That's a cool My one of my grade school friends that I went to grade school with, he joined the Air Force and he got deployed. I can't remember what year it was. He got deployed And when he came back, that's when I found out that he was a Mason. And I was like, what? I was like, why did you tell me? He says, well, I don't know. I wasn't really, wasn't active. And, you know, while I was over there, I went through two more of my degrees. And now I want to finish. And so I got to, (coughs) I got to perform the last uh, ceremony on him. To, to, to make him a master mason. So that was really, and it was in that lodge in that washer right there in King Williams. Yeah, man, that was, that, that's a cool lodge. It's very old too. That lodge is really old.
0: It seems like it. So let's jump a little bit forward. So you were doing this thing um, with Coptic, your the contractor. And at some point in the last few years, you got into coffee. Yeah. So how how did it go from um, being a connoisseur of coffee to actually starting your own coffee uh, roasting business?
1: Well, you know as well as I do, Navy coffee is just absolute mud. It's disgusting.
0: How dare you?
1: Yeah, I know it's terrible. And um, I grew up with a percolator. My dad—it's all he ever used—with Folgers and a percolator. Uh, and then after the Navy, I would just get coffee at the gas station, man, I didn't even care. It was black and it was hot. It was good. Let's go. And um, uh, leading up to, I, I had started this uh, absolutely horrible habit that I am, that I would probably, I mean, I'll admit it because that's what all addicts do. They have to admit that they have a problem, but I used to go to that S place and, uh, and I won't say their full name because they are the enemy and um disgusting coffee I can't believe I ever like that's all I ever drank but I was I had a pretty serious habit at that point in time before we left to go see my grandson my grandson was born in 2014 and so we took a month off of work and we went to New Zealand and because we were going to New Zealand I booked a trip to Sydney because you know Australia has been on my bucket list since I was I, I can't even remember how long and so uh We got to my kid's house, and they drank uh, instant coffee, New Zealand. And I'm like, really? Yeah, that's what we drink. And I'm like, okay, I'll pass. So I I was already gone about a week without coffee, and I was really, really, you know, pissed off and cranky. We went to Sydney, and I went to this little, you know, everybody got to take a picture in front of the opera house. And so we were walking down that sidewalk to get where everybody takes that picture. And uh, there was this little, literally like six sheets of plywood that he put together with some little rinky dink hinges. And we're walking past the guy opens it up and he's got coffee. And I'm like, can't be any worse than gas station or instant. And I was like, Hey, make me a cup of coffee. And when he brewed it, I was like, Oh my God, that smells amazing. And I was like, this is the best cup of coffee I've ever had in my whole life. And it's out of a little, literally a cardboard box on the side of the road, man. The guy looked like he was homeless. And um, I was like, dude, how do you make your coffee so good? He says, what do you mean? I said, this is the best cup of coffee I ever had. He says, there's like nine roasteries in Sydney. They all roast on Wednesday. So I go get my coffee on Thursday. I don't buy more than a week's worth of coffee so that it's fresh every week. And then I don't, grind it until you order it and I was like what and so you know I ended up we hit like every coffee shop that we could find in Sydney the weekend we were there I was like oh my god the coffee is amazing here and so we went back to New Zealand and we were there for two days and I told Connie that's it we're ditching the kids we're going to go to town because my kids didn't leave their neighborhood there's a little store in the neighborhood they would go to they wouldn't leave their neighborhood so we went downtown hamilton new zealand and sure enough there's a little dive we walked in i was like can i have a coffee amazing coffee i was like oh my god this is awesome and so i uh, got home and I, w- I brought four pounds of coffee with me uh I, this brand called robert harris it's in new zealand and um they're they're a, they're a big franchise they're not really a franchise because they, they own they own all the Robert Harris's. But anyway, I was stuck on Robert Harris for a long time. And a lady at church said, Hey, I've got this little electric countertop roaster. You ought to roast your own coffee, man, if you're trying to get that flavor and not get it from New Zealand. And I'm like, Okay, what do I, what, what kind of beans? Where, where do you get beans? Just go on Amazon. Like, oh, okay. What, what kind of beans? And she's like, Well, you know, so she kind of knew like what kind of beans had different taste profiles and whatnot. And so I bought coffee on Amazon and I used this, I roast and it was, you know, it was okay. It was better than star. I'm not going to say their name. And, uh, and so I was out grilling steaks one day and I was like, man, if I could find a way to grill those beans on this thing, man, I might have something, you know? And so I did my first, you know, I bought this little cage from Amazon. I still have it somewhere and uh, it does about four or five ounces, and uh, I grill them with a rotisserie, a regular chicken rotisserie that you buy for barbecue pits over open flame mesquite, and that first cup of coffee, I was like, okay, this is not anywhere where it needs to be, but this is a huge leap in the right direction, and so I have a, you saw the smoker pit. I've got that big, huge smoker pit that I sold to a guy. And he sold it back for me because it was too big it was you know it's three feet in diameter so i made a thing a buddy of mine welded up a a container for me to do six eight pounds at a time and uh that's that's kind of how we got started i i didn't think of it as a business until later it was just a way for me to get my fix you know i i want that coffee and i don't want it to taste like crap and so uh, I just kept playing with it till, till we got the roast profile down, and and uh, you know we bought a commercial roaster. That's I still use mesquite with every, uh, every batch that I roast. So that's kind of how we we got into the coffee business.
0: So how did you um, how do you determine the right beans to use now?
1: When we were uh, trying to figure out. Um, initially, I didn't know, like, my, my, a fr- that friend of mine told us, you know, like, the, the African beans are stronger, and the uh, Central American beans, and whatnot, and so, at, by this time, I'd already been at the, at, at the, you know, working as a contractor for the agency for, I don't know, eight years, and I was fed up, man, I was done with all that government, you know, uh, I know I said earlier that I didn't care what they did, but, that's the reason I left. Cause I was tired of how intrusive, I mean, if I got a, if I got a speeding ticket on the way to work, I had, you know, X amount of hours before I had to report it to him. Uh, if I was going to go on travel, I had to report, you know, request permission ahead of time, um, stuff like that. But I, uh, was trying to find a way out of there. And so my wife and I started praying about it and this guy popped up in my feed one day and turns out that he owns a coffee farm in Honduras and so I was like really he's like yeah man he goes uh he goes I've been you know goes, do you believe in divine appointments I said well yeah I do I've been praying for a man for the last year he says well I feel like I'm being led to help you with your coffee business he said well it's not really a business he says but is that what you want to do I said yeah that's what I want to do he says okay well I'm I feel like I'm being led to help you get where you're at to where you want to be with the coffee. And I was just blown away, man. It was just a total godsend. And so he started helping me with the pit still when I was still working with it, get my roast down. And then when I got the new machine, you know, I, I had four bags of 150-pound bags of coffee waiting for me. And, um, and so he helped me dial in the machine as far as my, my roasting went and um, and that's where we've been ever since we 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 only buy i do have one coffee because i'm i'm not trying i don't try to compete with anybody right i do specialty coffee i do me but there's that other military-owned company uh you know that they're really huge and they might be black something and uh they have they a like, coffee
0: they like guns
1: <laughs> they like guns <laughs> they got dogs i love their videos. Um, huge outfit uh and, I, and the guy was an army ranger right the guy started at matt whatever his name is but anyway uh i was buying their calf for the longest time which is caffeinated as f that, that's their coffee and that's what i was drinking and ashley told me one day he says you know there's no way that that coffee roasted that dark has that much caffeine in it and i'm like what do you mean ashley what do you, what say you what He's like, yeah, man. He says, high caffeinated coffee is light roasted. And I'm like, what? So I started doing research. Sure enough, man, the lighter the roast, the higher the caffeine content. And I'm like, well, how do they, how does, how do they get their coffee so dark and have so much caffeine? Just they add it. I'm like, wait, stop. How do you add caffeine to coffee? And you know what? You put stuff in it. And I'm like, no, say it isn't so. And, and so I developed, A coffee that uses Robusta beans from Guatemala. Uh, I use 40% Robusta beans with 60% of my legacy farms from Honduras. I mix those. I roast them both to light. And I have an extremely highly caffeinated coffee now that people have a problem with because they get it and they're like, hey, man, it looks like tea. I was like, yes, it looks like tea. It tastes like coffee. Don't drink it afternoon because you won't go to sleep that night. And inevitably somebody calls me, dude, I drank like 30 ounces on my shift and I couldn't sleep all night. I told you, but it looks like tea. I go, I know. But that's because we're trained to think that coffee's supposed to be black, you know?
0: Well, I'm, I'm kind of curious as you're talking about this and the other company. So I can think of two other, like I had a former master chief. She got out and opened a coffee shop. Uh, there's Navy Joe Coffee which was done by a chief. And then the one that we were talking about, it seems like, and I think there's probably another five or six. I just can't recall the names. What do you think the draw is to coffee for veterans now?
1: I think the draw now, man, is uh, just like, you know, when everybody came here to the house, you know, sitting around drinking a cup of coffee and joining each other's company. How many times have you gone and had a conversation with somebody at a coffee shop? You know, I mean, honestly, I think that's something that we've gotten away from. Back in the 50s, old men would go to a a diner, you know, in a farming community. All the guys, once they got their morning chores done, they'd all go to the local diner and all sit around and have a cup of coffee, you know, and talk about the weather or whatever. And so I I think that that part of that, you know, coffee was a big thing in the military. I don't know. You know what your experience was but for us it was like that. Was, oh yeah the only thing we got free man was coffee and we drank the heck out of it all the time and so i think that just you know i don't know why everybody gets into it i got into it because i had real coffee overseas and i couldn't find it here and i wanted the same thing i was having over there uh and then my mind you know it it, it goes a lot faster than my body goes uh, it's like, you know, mesquite, dude, mesquite. i was like, what? Mesquite? Coffee? What? You know, the little rats in my squirrel cage were just like going 90 to nothing. And so, um, but I think there's still something to be said about that, you know, that, you know, meet up on the mess decks after hours and play cards, you know, a cup of coffee or, you know, grab a cup of joe on your way up to the flight deck, you know, and sit up on the flight deck as the sun comes up over the water. It just, it's just a culture you know? It's yeah.
0: Yeah. So going, uh, you said what you started this in 2018, roughly?
1: 2019. Yeah.
0: 2019. How have you felt since leaving your full-time job, uh, and venturing into this?
1: It was, uh, it was pretty scary. I tried to leave this. I tried to leave my job twice. Uh, I left, the, the first time I was going to leave our senior VP said, uh, you're not leaving we'll do whatever we have to do to accommodate you. And I'm like, well, I can't work shift anymore because I was working a rotating shift. Uh, I said, I'm not working weekends anymore. And I said, I can't really work full time. He's like, that's okay. You can work 30 hours a week. You can flex the 30 hours and no more, you know, you don't have to do any more shift work or anything. And will that work for you? And I'm like, uh, yeah. And so we ordered that year we started. That was 20, See, it was 2020, 2019 maybe late 2019 it was February. So it was 2019, I think when I did that. And then the following year, 2020 rise right, when we had the pandemic. And so I, I spent a full year just trying to get my roast down what I liked, what I wanted. Didn't really do a business sort of like what I've got now. Uh, towards the end of the year, 2019, we built the website. We got stuff up on the website to sell the coffee started getting like local, just local you know, ground, gaining ground. Um, When the pandemic hit, everybody's at home. And all of a sudden, man, I had more orders than I can keep up with because people were buying coffee at home. And so um, I made a lot of money at that job, man. So walking off of that job was scary as hell. I mean, you know, but my wife who didn't, doesn't take risks at all ever. She told me, I don't know how many times she's told me that. You're the risk taker, I'm not. She worked for the state for 30 years, retired, was working at the eye doctors, got hired back on by Comal County, given 360 months seniority. So she's like at a second job with 30 years seniority again. Uh, And she brings up to me, and she's on full staff at the church And I have got my, I get a little bit of disability from the military. So I've got that. So we have like four or five streams of revenue before the, the coffee. But she tells me, she's like, you realize that when you started to pray for this, I went from having one income to having three incomes, you know, and you've got two. And so we can do this. You know, the thing was, she couldn't deny what God was doing. As far as people he was bringing into my life people he was bringing into the business, the way things were just falling into place despite what she wanted or hoped would happen. Uh, And so it was a pretty scary, scary time. And so after a year of working part-time, in fact, it was a year exactly, I submitted my resignation the second week of February uh, in 2020. And then February 26th of 2021 is when I actually left. And so um, it was a little scary. And there was a couple of months, uh, actually a couple of weeks, i say say, probably about six weeks, the first six weeks, uh, my wife had a really hard time. She was scared to look at the bank account. Uh, you know, she's like, well, you're home, you know, how come like, you know, how come you didn't get anything done at home? And I'm like, you understand that I'm not at home to be at home, like just to kick back with my chanclas, even though I'm in my chanclas, but <laughs> You know, I said, I'm trying to run this business. I'm trying to get it to the next level so that, you know, you can, you know, three to five years, you can walk away from all your stuff, you know, and just go fishing or gardening or do whatever you want to do and not have to work at all. So there was a little bit of transition period there where we had to figure out, you know, this is different. This is very different and it's difficult. But uh, the people that are, you know, I'm in the warrior council and the Vet tribe that has changed the face of my business. Uh, just being able to network with a bunch of people uh, from the tribe, you know, has has changed my business. You know, and, uh, Chris, you met Chris uh, here at the house on the weekend. Chris and I had talked about doing coffee before, but we never made a deal. You know, that weekend we brokered a deal, and we're we're going to go forward with it. And so, nice. uh, you know, it's it's not been easy, uh, but I believe in what I'm doing. I believe that my product is unique. I've got enough feedback to to reaffirm that. Um, And so we're just gonna push forward with it. And you know, God's gonna, he'll put brick walls in front of me, man. If I go the wrong direction, I believe that.
0: Definitely. So I got to give you one piece of branding advice. Say your company name.
1: Third day coffee's again. (laughs) I'm
0: I'm like, we've been talking about this and he hasn't said the name of the coffee yet. So do you, speaking of the Warrior Council and Veteran Tribe, how do you, what do you say to vets who are getting out now who aren't quite sure what they want to do, but have ideas? Where do you, in your opinion, place college versus getting a real job versus starting something on your own for young veterans now?
1: <clears throat> the advice I would give you is that if you have an idea, a concept of what you want to do, you do not have to go to a four-year university and get a degree in business to do it. Uh, I just left Wayland Baptist this, this last semester uh, because I realized that although education is awesome, and that school was awesome, and I do want to finish my ministry courses uh, to get my degree in Christian ministries, I don't really care if I finish the business ones or not because all that stuff is textbook stuff. And it's good knowledge to have. It's great. It gives you a foundation, but if it's not tangible, workable information, which is what I'm getting out of the Vetpreneur tribe. It's what I'm getting out of the warrior council. I'm getting tangible things that I can put into play immediately that convert to money, you know, and that's more important than going to school for four years and beating yourself up and stressing out and, you know, if you have an idea, you, you know that you want to do this business, do it. Do it right now. I think that I tell people this all the time. I believe that right now, veterans, this is our time right now. This is where we pivot from people saying, oh, they're just a bunch of old broken down, pissed off vets to, holy crap, look at what these guys are doing. They're all veterans, you know. I, I see us like, the, like the, the, the greatest generation, the World War II vets that came back from World War II. They went and saw the worst atrocities that the world had ever seen. And they came back and they started businesses and they left their jobs. And they, you know, I mean, some of them went to work in factories and stayed there for 30 years. But, but a lot of business blew up during that time. You know, those guys that came back and they realized, man, the most important thing is not for me to go chase that dollar. It's for me to enjoy whatever time I have on earth. You know, like Lane always says, and, you know, it's all about quality of life. And so do you want to go to a job and make great money, but you hate it? Or do you want to struggle a little bit and make it on your own, on your own terms? You know, which is what I'm after now. I want to, I'm tired of the government in my back pocket. I've worked for them since I was a kid. I want that boot off my neck and I'm working for me. And so whatever I do, if I sit on the couch all day and watch TV, I'm not hurting anybody but myself, which I I don't do. But, you know, it's easy. You could do that. You could fall into that. Eh, I'm not gonna do shit today. And.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with you 100. That's it. Took me a while to get to the point of starting this and working on some other stuff. But yeah, it's the same thing. I think. That we are suited. Uh, I, like you said, your school was six months. Um. Core school was, I think when I went through eight or 10 weeks and it gave us a foundation, but we learned the best from the guys that we worked next to. Um, I did minor surgery in Iraq by myself because a medical officer wanted to finish playing solitaire. Couldn't do that in the civilian world. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) and he trusted, he trusted me enough because he knew the training that I had been getting over the years. And I'm pretty sure you were doing stuff with electronics that may or may not have been out of your scope of practice, but you had the right on the job training. So to close this, um, how do people find you
1: we're all besides
0: over. call the Masons?
1: So, yeah, don't talk to the Masons because they probably don't have, you know, they get real offended when you leave. I'll, I'll tell you that. Um, uh, Blood in, blood out, right? <laughs> uh, they get real offended when you leave. Uh, I still have a lot of great friends that are, that are still active. Uh, uh is our website. Uh, at the very bottom of the first page, it's got all our links to all our social media, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, uh pinterest all those things we have them all uh, we're on youtube also as third day coffee seguin, and that's s-e-g-u-i-n uh, and you have to put the seguin there because there is a third day coffee in uh the uk and uh, the reason i picked that name is because luke 24 and 46 says and the christ will suffer and die and on the third day will rise again and so that's where our name comes from. It comes from the scripture, Luke 24 and 46. But since I made the company, since I, I, I went to the courthouse and filed papers and all that stuff, uh, and when I see my web address and it's like that long, and my email address and it's even like that long, uh, I've had second thoughts about, man, how can I condense this? You know, so it's just like, you know, bam, bam, calm, boom, let's go. And so we're we're coming up with some things for the for the new website that we're going to try to roll out.
0: So is it three R D D-A-Y, or no, it's T-H-I-R-D? Actually,
1: it's actually thirddaycoffeeagain.com. Gotcha. Places, no nothing, just thirddaycoffeeagain.com. I I think we are going to try to really really uh, make that very simple when we launch the new website.
0: There's a lot of combinations that you could do. Um, I'm not going to say I'm here because assholes will go steal the, the websites. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm so huge that, you know, there's 100 million people just waiting to take uh, any web address suggestions I give you right now. You never know. I know.
1: I know. You got to <laughs> sign up on Saturday for the, uh, the uh, Veteran Podcast Awards. What? Yeah, Veteran Podcast Awards. Uh, on May 1st, you can nominate your podcast, and then from September to August is going to be the voting, the listeners voting month, uh, and then they're going to have awards in October.
0: Oh, nice. Is that on the Vetrapreneur site, or is that?
1: It, it is on the Vetpreneur site, uh, and it's also uh, Travis Johnson, who's in the, in the tribe. He's the nonprofit architect. He's a co-sponsor uh for that and the other guy is jarhead something i can't remember exactly what it is but it's jarhead something but um he came up with the idea and it's called the veteran if you look at a veteran podcast awards uh it, it'll pop up with a gold mic and
0: i'm going to have and, to look into that yeah steal everyone's gold mic <laughs>
1: yeah yeah i mean i i want i want the the uh, the trophy looks like a thor hammer and uh I like that got, got the microphone on it, you know, and then they're giving away a sure mic. That's like $250 value. Uh, sure sponsored them, actually. Oh, nice. I, I have Shure mics. That's what I use. But I've been using Shure mics since way back in the day when I used to hang around the bands all the time.
0: Yeah, I've had this thing forever. This is a sure as well.
1: Yeah, I love sure. So.
0: <laughs> all right, my friend, I'm going to let you go. Uh, let you get back to what you got to do. I can hear your chickens in the back or your roosters in the background. He's lucky he's
1: not been put in a pot yet.
0: (laughs) Oh God. Well, hopefully we'll be seeing you soon out there and maybe we can cook that chicken up. There you go. All right, my friend, I'm going to, uh, stop the recording. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you can follow us on social. Check us out at our website, modernronin.com, on Instagram, The Modern Ronin, on Twitter at TommyChase01, and you can always support us at modernronin.locals.com. This is our locals group, and it would be great if you guys joined and subscribed. Some great benefits. Talk to you guys soon.